Good morning, church. Take out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be as we wrap up this series today and we head in through the week. And um, many of us will have many different moments of reflection and observation as we reflect deeply upon leading up to the cross of Christ on Good Friday and his resurrection next Sunday. But let me, I want to show you where we're headed after Easter. Um, just to give you a little glimpse of that and so you can be thinking and praying ahead. On May 1st, we are going to start a series titled Help My Unbelief. A sermon series is going to last about four weeks. Have you ever battled a season of doubt in your, um, in your walk with Christ? Uh, maybe you felt disillusioned with Christianity in general. Maybe you have looked at the behavior of Christians and felt like, are we out of our minds? Is this thing real? Uh, maybe you have had that. Um, maybe you've been hurt by Christians or a Christian, and it caused you to struggle in your belief and your, your faith. Maybe you feel like in some way in life God let you down, um, and you struggle with doubt in those seasons. Maybe something horrible in your life has happened, you caused, and it caused you to ask deep questions about God and His reality, because how would He allow this to happen in your life? Maybe you are just immersed in an anti-religion voice in, in your world, in your daily life, and it's causing you to question a lot of things in your heart and your faith. Maybe you're a young person that is in that transition phase of not just assuming your parents' faith, but now moving into that place where you own your own faith. And many times in that transition, by the way, it's the most important thing a student needs before they go off to college, is that you own your own faith. That you've taken off the comfortable blanket of mom and dad's faith and you have gone through the process of owning your own faith. Um, well, in that process, doubt can be a part of that. Maybe you're just the personality type where you are an evidence examiner. I don't want emotion. I don't want rumor. I want evidence. Hard, cold facts. And uh, you know what? There are people like that in the Bible too. So you will be very encouraged. Um, so uh, we begin on May the 1st. We're going to begin the series all on on doubt. And um, so, if you know of someone that maybe this would pertain to uh, in your life, a friend, neighbor, coworker, please invite them. Let them know it's coming. We'd love to have them, them here. It begins on May 1st. Hope to see you all. Did I do enough to set up the interest? I just try to think of every single category I could possibly think of that this uh, series would pertain to. So, I hope it hit all of y'all, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll join me in that. Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read from verse 31 down to 38. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to unpack this. 
Father, we just uh, commit this time to you. And uh, Lord, we turn the attention of our hearts vertical to you. And uh, Lord, we pray that you'd open our ears and our hearts, that you'd help us see the glorious cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, that our hearts would be deeply affected, almost entirely affected. Um, and Lord, that we would receive the full life from the death of the Son of God. And so, Lord, you have us. Speak to us from your word. Um, enlighten the truth in our hearts, in our lives, in our world. Make us what you want us to be. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're wrapping up this series this week on uncomfortable. And the premise of the whole series, if you guys have been following along with us, is that in our culture, in American culture, Comfort is a high value to us, and you can probably pick out a thousand ways in your own life where comforts are nice, and there's nothing inherently wrong with comforts, but you can chase comfort and value comfort so high that you actually starve yourself of the best things that life has to offer. If comfort is your goal, it's almost like you don't get comfort. You have to aim for the things that have the reward of comfort in order to get comforts and, and, and delights and things like that in life. And so in Christianity, similarly, we can never make our comforts the goal. Uh, because many of the aspects of the Christian walk, almost all of the whole Christian walk, is a big, fat, uncomfortable process. Um, if you think about you being comfortable, um, in week one we talked about the very first call of a person to become a Christian is the most uncomfortable thing that we can do, to hand the agenda of our life to another person as Lord. They make the decisions. I am no longer my own. I'm bought with a price. I belong to someone else, and they, de they determine my steps in my life. I, I've given up the rights to that. There is nothing more uncomfortable for a human being than to give up control, even of their own lives. And then week two, Jesus, when he does have control, will take us into a spiritual family and existing in the community of faith we talked about last week has all kinds of uncomfortable aspects to it. Uh, your flaws being exposed to other people, you seeing their flaws um, is uncomfortable. And dealing with other people who have flaws is, is a very uncomfortable thing. Um, apologizing to people that you have hurt. And Jesus leads you right in that. And there's nothing comfortable about apologizing. Amen. Nothing, and, and there's also nothing comfortable about having to forgive someone who hurt you. That's not comfortable. That's not with our nature. Uh, so you have to forgive because you're in the family. You have um, personality clashes. People that just irk you, um, you know, it's just part, part of being part of a family, right? Difference of perspectives and lots of uncomfortable aspects of even family life within Christianity. Well, today um, we progress. We set our eyes uh, from today till Friday in an a intense focus in our calendar where we lean into and focus intently upon the Lord and his commitment and dedication to accomplishing our salvation this very week. And every step of the way, you need to hear him say, as this morning, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. You can't do this. Only I can do it. But I'm doing it for you. And you are going to receive all the benefits of this thing that I am doing for you. But we set our sights on Good Friday and um, focusing in an intensive way upon the progression and then the culmination of the Son of God on the cross. 
And today in our passage, we see here Jesus telling his disciples very plainly, I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I am going to suffer many things. I am going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I am going to die. And then I'm going to raise to life again on the third day. But he says something interesting here that Jesus uses this word. And I think I just want to highlight it for just a second and, 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 and focus on that for just a second. It's this word must. Um, in verse 31, he says, must happen. Um, it's used first in the sense that all subsequent things listed are a must for Jesus. These things must happen. I must, and then it lists out all these things. I must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and raised on the third day. And this word must, uh, in English he uses it twice, but in, in the Greek it's just that first word and then everything that comes behind it is all the things that must happen. It's unavoidably determined by prior circumstances. In other words, all the lots of paradigms are coming together where this must happen. This must take place. It's fitting on all kinds of layers and levels that this must happen. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. Not that I will suffer. It's a different word. If you wanted to use that, you'd say it different. But he said, I must. Not I will. I must. Perhaps... Um, for us, due to our familiarity with the cross, the message of the cross, um, we can't perhaps see the strangeness of this kind of talk to the disciples themselves that day. And th- many times we're like, Peter, he don't get it. Right? Well, you know what? Neither would you. You'd be there and you'd be going, wait a minute, what? This doesn't make any sense. This is like really odd language for a person to use. The disciples knew he was the Messiah. They knew that he was the Christ, the anointed one. And yet a Messiah is a king and, and he conquers and he's powerful. A king is a leader. He's esteemed by people and he defeats his foes. Um, kings don't become kings and rule and reign through being executed. It's just not the pathway. Um, and, and I can't see anything coming that would be on that pathway of execution of being the way that this, this would happen. And yet Jesus is saying it very plainly, and yet they don't get it because it's just so awkward. It's so strange to say, you're so committed to going and being executed. It just doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus is saying here, my suffering and rejection and execution and resurrection must take place. And so the question here is... Why uh, does Jesus use the term must? Uh, what are the things that are predetermined? What are the, the, the things that are determined beforehand that have made this have to happen? It has to happen. What, what, is, what are the things? What are these predetermined factors? And I want to say it in one word, but the one word pulls together a lot of dynamics that make this word Um, uh, you can see it in a myriad of ways. And that one word is love. But even that's strange, isn't it? If we get back to the basics of this and we just walk through the story and try to remove anything that we know from this, 
and unpack it. Why is this must execution love? Why is that? How is it love for someone to be dedicated and committed to their own execution? Well, you have to understand all the predetermined factors that make it a must. And when you understand all the predetermined factors that make it a must, then you can see the love in it. But I'll argue, until you know the predetermined factors, you don't get the love. You don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, why would that be love? And so what I want to show you today is one of the predetermined biggies of why Jesus said this must happen. And here it is. Jesus must suffer and die because the law had to be satisfied. The law had to be satisfied. Follow with me in this train of thought for just a second. It comes to a head, but follow with me through the train of thought. Because it's going to give you lenses by which Friday will make a whole bunch of sense. If it doesn't to you, it will if you you follow along this track. The New Testament says that the only way for reconciliation between a holy and just God and for sinful man in its fallen condition to be brought back together and reconciled, the only way for that to happen according to the nature and character of God who is our creator, the only way for that to happen is for the just requirements of the law, God's law, to be satisfied, to be satisfied. So when you think about justice, um, you'll feel this. Um, When you are wronged, um, you feel like it needs to be righted, right? Or you see someone being wronged and you feel like that was wrong, it needs to be righted through X, whatever that X might be. It's called justice. It's a wrong that needs to be righted. Every one of us feel this inside from the time we're this tall, because even when we're this tall, we know how to say, that's not fair. Right? You got grandkids or kids that say that? We know innately something isn't fair. We have it in us. Where do we get it? We get it from God. God In Imago Dei, we're made in the image of God. We have an inner desire that wrongs should be righted so that the universe can be balanced. God is a God of justice. God loves justice. Justice is the foundation of his throne. He is a just and holy God. Now, one of the major purposes of God's law is to establish the requisites establish the line of where rights and wrongs can be seen. Um, it's also to show us how far from God's nature that humanity has fallen. So when God gives his law to Moses, the Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, the law, Old Testament, if you want to look at it that way, when God gives that law, The thing that God is doing in giving his law, multifolded here, um, but one thing is it's coming and emanating from his own character and nature. You're getting to know the holiness and goodness of God, but you're also learning the original intent by which he made humanity, that this is be our nature. 
This is the nature we should have instinctively. And so when he gives the law and you walk through the law, what you'll see is that this is God's nature and it's the nature that he says that we should have and we should have it instinctively. We shouldn't have to work on it. This is something that we should, we should easily fulfill. But as you try to fulfill it, as you read it, as you look through it, you, what you recognize is there's a contrast between what God says we should be and what we actually are. And what God is showing you in that is how far off the original intent you have fallen. So God is showing us with the contrast in his law how far we've gone. So in other words, like um, the law was given, it's almost like if you, you think a shirt is white, and then you hold up a white, a pure white sheet next to it, and you realize, oh, that shirt's tan. It's more tan, right? Um, we really can't see. We really can't see how far off the the actual uh, intended nature that we should have. We don't know how far off we are unless God gives His law, and then we compare ourselves to His law, and we go, oh, I'm way off. In fact, I'm not just way off. I'm I'm done. I'm not even close. I'm not even the ballpark. I'm not the same universe. Um, and so it feels when you look to the law, the law that God gave, when you look at it, you can see the contrast. And so in that way, the law clarifies what sin is. Romans 7, 6, Paul says that we would not know what sin was unless the law had told us. In other words, we just operate on instinct, not knowing it's sin. But the law came in and it was light. And it was like, oh my goodness, now I can see the way I'm supposed to be and I realize I am not at all what I'm supposed to be according to God. So let me just give you some high level things here, okay, from the law that shows what we should do instinctively and we shouldn't even have to work on it. One, love God with your whole being, all that you are. Never put anything in this world as more important than God. Always tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. No white lies, half-truths, or exaggerations. Love your neighbor to the, to the same degree that you love yourself at all times. No sex outside of marriage. This includes your thought life and your lusts. If you think it in your heart, God sees it as the same as actually doing it. Don't hate another human being. God sees hatred in the heart as murder. Honor your parents at all times, not because they deserve it, but because they are your parents. And then children, obey your parents in everything. Treat everyone the way that you would want to be treated in every scenario. Never hurt another human being with your words. I'll just stop there. I'm just mentioning a few. The law, when you get into it, forces you to see how far off you are. And that's an important thing for you in your relationship with God. One of the first things we need to come to grips with is the admission of how far off God's original intent in creating human beings has gone. And the only way we see that is his law. So the New Testament says the law reveals the sin. And that's an important step. It's good for us to know. We need to see the contrast. But it doesn't just show us, show us the contrast, show us what we should be and show us how off we are. It also shows us the consequences of being off and way off and being fallen and corrupted to our core, the Bible says. The consequences of this are enormous for a human being. It doesn't take long that we'd see we've broken it to pieces and we know we're nowhere near what God's intent 
on a human being being. And we also know that God is this. This is God's way, and this is the way we should be, and we know that that's, that's not the case. And we also know at the same time there's a separation, there's a consequence. There's a consequence to these things. And to sin in the slightest way is to deserve the full justice from the law as a lawbreaker. And the Bible uses the word, we throw it around, but this is the actual technical term, sinner. A person who lives almost daily in contradiction to the revealed law of a holy God. That is a sinner in which we are all bundled up into that, that, that tagline there. Now, the law doesn't just show us how far we are or just the consequences of it. The law actually turns on us and condemns us. And that's a legal term. It's a a legal condemnation of a convicted criminal guilty of rebellion to a holy and just creator. It's a legal term the Bible uses. And so when the law condemns you, The only way for you to come out of your condemned state under the law is that it has to be, the law has to be satisfied on our account. Same way we talk about it in civil law. The the same way, there has to be penal retribution to satisfy the law. The lawbreaker must receive the punishment of the offense. Do the time. Pay the price. Pay the penalty. Whatever it might be. But to satisfy the law means a price has to be paid. The problem with God's law is this. An eternal offense has been done to an eternal creator. And even the slightest sin is total rebellion to an eternal God that deserves and is right, according to the law, a eternal condemnation. That is the justice required for such an offense, eternal condemnation. Now, every human being, according to the Bible, is under that condemnation. John says in John 3.18, you like John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, we use it all the time. Two verses later, Focus on this verse. Go look at John 3, 18. It says that who does believe in him is condemned already. In other words, this is the state of humanity. The law just shows us the state. It doesn't help us. The law doesn't save you. Imagine um, a criminal in court, guilty of murder, who says, okay, I get it. Okay, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. But I'll never do it again. So let me go. Right? You go, that's not how this works. Right? That's not how that works. The problem is what you've already done. You are condemned already. It's not about living it now and improving and somehow being less of a guilty murderer. You know, you have to receive the justice of what you've already done. And so the idea here is that we've already, we are already condemned by the law fully. We stand condemned. And so for us to go to the law and go, okay, I'm going I'm to try harder. The Bible says, no, it's already done. You're already condemned. That's what John is saying here. So here's the thing. Let me come back to it now. Why is the cross a must for Jesus? Because the only way for this righteous, good, and true satisfaction of this law 
to take place is the atonement of the Son of God upon a cross. That is, and when he is going to the cross, he is taking on all the penalty of the condemnation of, of the condemnation of the law as a penalty satisfier for the law. So on the cross, there is a judicial satisfaction taking place in the councils of heaven and the whole universe. It has to happen. There is no other way for a human being to be reconciled to our Creator than for this law to be satisfied. It will not happen. I talk to people all the time that say, well, I'm just going to, you know, what's going to happen after death? Well, I'll just get to heaven. I'll get to judgment day. And God will know my heart and we'll, and we'll work things out. And I'm like, you don't know God. He is just. And I want you to think about this too. If the cross was required and there was no other way, let this cup be taken from me, Jesus said. And he says, no. It's the only way. Why is it the only way? Why can't God just go, all right, y'all messed up. We'll just sweep it off to the side under the rug and we'll just let bygones be bygones and we'll just, just come on back, right? Why doesn't God do that? Why this bloody cross of his own son? Because he's just. It must be satisfied. And there's only one way. A cruel, bloody cross of a perfect, sinless lamb. That is the only way. Jesus said this must happen. And let me tell you, on judgment day, still in your sins, not having the grace of the cross, flood your soul and forgive you. On judgment day, you will face a God who is just and holy. And do not kid yourself to think mercy will be net out. On a sinner. Mercy has been provided on the cross. Outside of that, there is none. The law will be satisfied. Now, I know when I just say that, that's not a popular message. But that's Bible. God will judge. He is a holy and just God. He will by no means... Clear the guilty. We are condemned already. But here's the beauty. If you don't get the just, holy nature of God, you cannot see his love in the cross. You can't. Because it doesn't make sense. But if you understand that God is held bound by his own nature of just and holy, you see complete love in the cross. It's the only way, and yet he did it. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, just think of like combination of all this pain gets absorbed into the son of God so that a holy God and sinful men can be united in fellowship once again. There's a collision that takes place there called he is the propitiation. He's absorbing all the pain. All the pain. 
all the condemnation of the law, all the separation, all the suffering, all the penalty, all the payment, he's completely absorbing it into himself in this moment. Romans 5, 6-10, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God, and listen here, demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been, important phrase, justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? According to a New Testament writer, if you don't understand the wrath of God, the requirements of a just and holy God, the requirements of a just and good law, you don't get God's love. You don't even understand it. You can't even know what love is. His love. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Oswald Chambers says this in my utmost for his highest, highest. The cross was the place where God and sinful man merged with a tremendous collision and where the way to life was opened. But all the cost and pain of the collision was absorbed by the heart of God. The cross is a demonstration from God for every human being on the whole face of the planet. Look there. Look there. Look at my demonstration. I love you. And I don't just say it from heaven. I don't just tell someone to write it. I take on your suffering. I take full on, no comforts on my own. I give away everything that a human being would seek for comfort. And I embrace full suffering, all of your penalty, all of your rebellion, all the wrath you deserve. And I absorb it in myself and I do it willingly because I love you. Look to that. Nothing else in this world, nothing else in this world will answer the question that you have in your heart. Does God, my creator, love me? Don't look to anything else, not your circumstances, not to other things. Look to this, the cross of Calvary. And let that be the place where God speaks to your heart and says, look, look, receive. I'm willing. This must happen. Why? You. I want you. And it's the only way I can have you. Just take that in for a minute. Let it speak to you. You take that cup and that bread. You see that passion movie scenes. He's saying, I love you. It must be. But feel my love. Feel it. Drink.
1 John 3, 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. You ever want to know what love is? You got to know what love is from God. God is love. He defines what love is and what it isn't. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. A ripple effect. The rock hits the steel pond on the cross of Christ. And it has a ripple effect all around the world and it hits hearts. And it, and it hits you and it hits me and it's the love of God and it fills our hearts. And you know what? It affects us and something we do. Look what he says here. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He laid down his life and a ripple effect. It hits my heart and it, what does it make me do? It frees me some, from selfishness. Seeking my own comforts above all. To lay down my comforts willingly for the welfare of another person. Embrace sacrifice. Embrace maybe suffering, inconvenience for another human being. His sacrifice makes me sacrificial. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, at the center of the Christian faith is a cross. And in the cross, paradigms are converging in a moment. I just mentioned one, the satisfaction of the law much less prophecies, the fulfillment of the, will, the Father's will, all kinds of other things converging at the same time into this one moment, the cross of Christ. You see, in Christianity, let me tell you this, this is the formula. In Christianity, love equals sacrifice. Love equals sacrifice. We have a God who came to us and demonstrated sacrifice and love for us. Two things. Think about this. If Jesus' highest goal in your life is to cause you, fill your heart so full of his love that you become a loving person the way he's loving. That's his end goal for your life. That you become a person who loves like he loves. That's his goal for you in sanctification. Love. Love for the welfare of others. Let me give you two quick little things here. I'm just going to mention these and we'll move and we're going to finish. First of all, if Christ, if you're following Christ in your life, he is going to lead you through the discomforts of growing in generosity. There is a connection to the cross hitting our hearts and freeing our hands from what we're holding on so tightly to in this material world. Generosity is a, you're free. You know what? In the resurrection, did you know you can't lose? You don't have to hold on to this life. You get it all back. He was raised, you're going to be raised. You get it all back. You don't have to hold on to it. You don't have to make it your life. You don't have to, you don't have to do all that. You don't have to be like this in life. You can let go. Why? There's love. You have him. You don't need anything. You can be content. You can be free. One aspect of the Christian life. 
that makes us go from selfish to selfless. I can let it go. I can give it. You can take it. The early church bought and sold goods. Give it to people who need it. No, no issue. Why? The cross had hit their heart. The cross had hit their heart. They don't have to hold on to this stuff. I got everything. I got everything in Christ. Secondly, he'll lead you to face the discomforts of, of your fears, your greatest fears. You're, you're going to, following Christ is an uncomfortable thing, but it's full of life and joy. In my own walk with Christ, I had to die to uh, some things that I was very, very afraid of. I was absolutely terrified of this one thing, and he led me straight to it. Would not let me go around it. Not, you know, I wanted to just sort of like camp out and be a normal Christian. I'd just attend church and, and then live my life for me, right, and do what I want. Uh, and he would not let me do that. He kept taking me straight to this fear, straight to this fear, straight to this fear, and it created so much anxiety in my own life. Three MRIs over a period of several years because I just knew I had a brain tumor or, or something. I mean, I was driving, we're driving down the road, and one of my eyes just took off to the right. Looked that way. I know. Sounds like a horror film or something, right? Weird. But I didn't know what to think of that. I've never experienced anything like that. My body was doing all kinds of things. I couldn't sleep. I was, I was just anxious, anxious all the time. And I've, I've learned that I didn't have any, any tumor, thank goodness. But, but what I found throughout through the whole process is what my body was experiencing was anxiety, intense anxiety, very uncomfortable anxiety. And my body is physiologically responding to the uncomfortable, constant uncomfortable feeling that I am in, in this calling that he has on my life. And he keeps dragging me through it. And I am not wanting to say no, but I keep saying yes, but it's making me, it's very, very hard because he's dealing with this fear in my heart. And the fear that I had in my heart was the fear of man. I was crippled. Not a problem with think, you know, caring about what other people think is actually a healthy sign of humility. I had a terrorizing, debilitating fear of what people thought of me. And he kept marching me right down the path of confronting it and confronting it and confronting it. And it was very uncomfortable, very difficult, physiologically difficult for me. And he took me through that path of uncomfortableness uh, all the way through. Why? Because he has a calling on my life. He wants me to learn how to love people. And isn't it funny? I mean, this is what he wanted me to do. And I had this terrorizing fear of being up in front of people. I had a terrorizing fear of what people thought of me. And yet here I am. No one thinks like that this guy sounds idiotic more than me. I'm telling you. Um, but a work in my heart, you follow Jesus, he's going to take you to the place that he has for you. And he's not going to worry so much about your comfort. He wants to worry about you being poured out in your life for his glory and the welfare of other people. And that means you're going to have to embrace some suffering. You're going to have to embrace some uncomfortableness. You're going to have to embrace some of those things. But, oh, man, the reward, the greatness of the calling. And that, I am not an ounce uncomfortable now. <laughs> I am incredibly comfortable with something that absolutely terrorized me. You see what Jesus does in our lives? He'll take your terror and turn it into something you can completely exist in. Because you have him. And you can follow him anywhere. In this holy week, let us consider him who left nothing in reserve for us. Amen? Let us leave nothing in reserve for him. Let him take you where he wants you to go. 
Face what you need to face. Let go of what you need to let go of. You have everything in Him. Let Him have you. All of you. Step into that terror. Step there. He's leading you to. Not terror for terror's sake. Y'all hear me? Follow Him. Let Him have all of you in this season. Look at Him on the cross. All the way from now till Friday. And let him, let, let, hear that message to say, all of me to all of you. Not all of you to all of me. All of you to all of me. That's worship. Let this be our meditation this week. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you more than anything. Oh, how far we have fallen. But how great is your love, all displayed in a moment. In a moment of reflection, Lord, let us be filled afresh and anew with your love. And then make us loving. Work on us, Lord. Don't let us settle for anything less than loving the way you love. You're our king. You are the victorious one. You have conquered the grave, our greatest fear, our greatest enemy. Speak to us now during this time of response. Fill our hearts with your joy. Spirit, minister to us. Take us where you want us to go. Help us to release what we need to release to be more of what you want us to be, to experience more of the joy set before us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me all across the room? Let's sing this song. Let's pray. Do business with the Lord. Amen. Amen.